This evening we will be looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. As Pastor Rankin has taken us through the first leg of the journey through Nehemiah, we'll be continuing to go through that and, and tag-teaming as it were. We've come now to the fifth chapter. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. And they could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the twenty to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Our former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so 
because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word. Use your word, O Lord, to convict us. Use your word, O Lord, to comfort us. Use your word to bring us to the cross. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you thought recently about what there is to be afraid of? For after all, there is an awful lot to be afraid of, isn't there? Underneath the rubric of trusting the Lord, there are things still that we are concerned about. There are things that we fear. And it seems to me that if if we were to gather together and list them, they would sound something like this. Attacks from Satan. Persecution in the world. Abuse from secular authorities. The government imposing its will upon us. Attacks from foreign enemies. Threats from Islam. It seems to me we could very easily fill up a list of all sorts of things to be afraid of that are out there. What this passage challenges us with tonight is there is more to fear than the enemies out there. There is a real sense of need and concern for how the enemy works within the church. There is a threat that comes from within the church that threatens the church. This has always been so. It is greater at certain times in redemptive history. And this is one occasion where we can peek into that window and gain a lesson for how we see threats within the church, how we deal with threats within the church, and how we can model leadership to the church. This is what Nehemiah has done. First and foremost, let's look at this threat that comes to the church in the days of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah has been facing opposition up till this point. It has not all been roses and crumpets. As Pastor Rankin told us in chapter 4, the two men especially, Sanballat and Tobiah, men that you should be encouraged never to name your children after, these wicked men were pouring out threats Threats of violence. They were ridiculing those who were building 
the wall. They were opposing the work. And yet we hear in chapter 4 that Nehemiah and the Israelites persevered on. There is that wonderful picture that we should take with us in our Christian life of them building the wall with the trowel in one hand, the bricklayer's tool in one, and the sword in the other, knowing that they would have to fight to build. And so here we see at the beginning of chapter 5 that there arose a great outcry. And this would gather our attention were we the Hebrews of this day because the word for outcry is the exact same word that is used in the beginning of Exodus to describe the Israelites crying out to God for relief from their oppressors, the Egyptians. And we are all ready to see many, many more attacks on Israel that come from Sanballat and from Tobiah and from government officials and from false religions. We are all ready to see these attacks. They're so vicious and ferocious that the people cry out, that even their wives break their silence and they cry out. And then it hits us like a ton of bricks. They cry out against their Jewish brothers against those who should be protecting them against those who should be helping them against those who have common cause with them against those who have a common faith with them this new attack comes from inside god's people it is from those who are taking advantage of others within the body now imagine how devastating this would be For some of you, you don't have to imagine. You've undergone attacks in the church. People gossiping about you. People threatening you. People seeking to take advantage of you. And you know that this is the sort of disappointment, that this is the sort of devastation (coughs) that takes far longer to recover from than attacks from outside. Because we expect people to come at us and attack us from the front. We expect to have to be armed with the shield of faith and with the sword of God's word and to put on the armor of God and to face those attacks. What we don't expect is to get the dagger in the back. This is what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. And I think because this is so significant and important, the Holy Spirit through Nehemiah actually gives us The playing field of who is suffering. There are four groups here involved in the Jews and their community. The first are wage earners who have no land. You see, these are the folks who are literally threatened with starvation. They don't have enough food to eat. They can't get the work that they need and they don't have the land to support them. The second group are those who are landowners who are also starving because they have mortgaged their land. Everything that their land produces is taken away. Now, you have to understand this picture. There is a famine in the land, which means less is being produced, but it's not like they're producing nothing. They are producing small amounts. And you can imagine a hungry family as they gather together a bushel of fruit. The children in the family looking at the fruit with longing eyes, longing to eat. And then the banker comes. And he takes it all. 
And he says, remember, you still owe me. You better find some more. Can you imagine the devastation that that would wreak? There's a third group here. There are those who have land. And they do have some food, but they can see disaster on the horizon because, you see, there are heavy taxes to pay to the Persians. And they can't pay those taxes. But, you see, before we begin to rail against the government and its taxes, we have to understand the real problem for these people is not the taxes. It is that they have had to borrow the money to pay the taxes, and the lenders are charging exorbitant interest. Two, three, four times the customary interest, in direct violation of God's word. Who's charging that interest? Their brothers. You can imagine the devastation that brings. All of God's people in these categories are in dire straits, except for one category of people. There are those Jews who are wealthy, For the most part, it's because they were blessed in God's providence to leave in the first wave of exiles to return. And it was not that they were the hardest working Jews. It was not that they were the most skilled Jews. No, you see, they were blessed by God's providence to leave in the first exile return out and be given storehouses of wealth and gold and silver by the civil government. They brought that back with them so that they could set up shop, so that they could set up lending institutions, so they could buy up land. You see, they had been blessed, but they're not interested in passing on the blessing. And there is a real powerlessness that is felt here in the people of God because the worst part is there is nothing that they can do. They can't count on the government to help them because the government is opposed. The Bible should be helping them. God has laid down in His Word that it is illegal, it is wrong, it is against God's law to sell your brother into slavery. And yet they do it. They sell their brothers into slavery to the heathen simply for money. God had laid down His year of jubilee in Leviticus 25, which was a way of hope and a way out for even those who were in the worst of debt. They knew that when the year of Jubilee came, debts would be forgiven and they would be set free. There's only one problem. The Jews did not keep it. They refused to honor God's word and to bless their brothers. You see, the problem here is there is no concern for the people of God inside the church. It's a real attack. And that's where Nehemiah comes in and addresses the problem. After he hears all of these tales of woe, we see in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, I dare say, if you saw Nehemiah here in verse 6 today, you would not think he was a Presbyterian. He would be angry of face. His voice would be raised. His brow would be set for action. He is angry. The Hebrew word here for anger is he came, became very hot. He is boiling over. 
with anger. Now, there is a time to be Presbyterian, is there not? To be calm. But there is a time and a place to be angry. There is a time and a place to be angry when we see injustice done. When we see God's law flouted. And this is what Nehemiah is experiencing. He's experiencing righteous anger. But at the same time, I want you to see that Nehemiah does not lose his control in his anger. Look at verse 7. I took counsel with myself. Now, the, the phrasing on this is very interesting. It's almost like he's saying, I put my head and my heart together and they had a conversation. And we came up with a plan of action. You see, he knows it's not enough to be angry. If we're going to be righteously angry, we need less yelling and more doing. And so that's what he goes about to do. He's angry at the injustice of what has been done. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, this is again interesting. The word here for outcry is not the same word in verse 1. In verse 1, it's the same word that's used to describe the Hebrews before the Exodus. In this verse, it's the same word that is used to describe the outcry that has come against Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an outcry against injustice. It's an outcry against wrongness. It's an outcry against God's name being profaned by the actions of others. You see, Nehemiah sees that God's word is being thrown to the side They're taking charges they're not supposed to take according to God's word. They're charging interest they're not supposed to charge according to God's word. They are acting as pawnbrokers rather than brothers. Now, why would Nehemiah be angry? Well, the injustice is certainly one thing, but also understand who Nehemiah is and what he's doing. These people are undermining his mission. He risked his life to speak to the king, got the ability to come back, and has organized the rebuilding of the wall, and this could all fall apart because some people want to be greedy. He's trying to build this wall not just in a defensive position. He's trying to build this wall so that he can secure this city and build up a community. These people are tearing it down. Everything he's trying to do They're destroying. And what they're doing is obviously wrong. And what Nehemiah begins to do then is to take action. And he does it in a a most wise fashion. He begins by bringing what is going on to the light. He shines light into the darkness. Do you see this? He brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now, this doesn't mean that he ranted and raved. It doesn't mean that he slandered those people. What this means is that he brought it up to the court. He brought it up to the deciding body. He called an assembly and he basically said, this is what's going on. Do you think this is right? And if you don't, then we need to do something about it. You see, this is for the sake of those who are hurt and feel like they are powerless and feel like they have nothing that will help them. But It is also for the sake of those who are doing the hurting. Because he's not allowing them to keep on in their sinning. He's not allowing them to kid themselves into thinking they're not doing things that are wrong. 
He wants them to see and feel repentance. He wants them to be right with God. And so he brings it before the assembly. This is not a power struggle. This is not a vendetta against the lenders. He wants the problem fixed. You see, it is not enough to identify a problem. We're good at that, aren't we? Again, we could spend many, many hours identifying all of the problems in America and in the world today. It's not enough even to complain about the problem that it's wrong. We're experts at that too, aren't we? Nehemiah goes beyond that to taking action. He wants the problem fixed as much as it lies in his power. And so he begins to exhort those who are the problem. He begins to turn them, to remind them of their responsibility. He says, do you want to empower the enemy? Look at verse 9. Do you want our enemies to taunt us because of your actions? Do you want to give them momentum? Do you want them to see victory? He says in verse 10, don't you see what I'm doing? I'm not charging all this interest. I don't have all the olive groves. I am lending. I am giving out at no interest. I am seeking to support others. And then he says something that we are reluctant to hear in counseling or to give. He says simply, stop it now. You should not be doing this. It's wrong. And then he gives them hope. Look at verse 11. He says, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. He's giving the oppressors hope. You can make this right. You can be a part of this community. You can be a part of the solution instead of the problem. You can be a part of what makes this community great and glorifies God. Then you know what happens? Something else we don't expect. He, Nehemiah, and the community are blessed by the response. The oppressors repent. The people are helped. And God's judgment is upheld. Have you ever had that experience? I think far too often when we have conflict within the church, we are reluctant to even bring up something of the conflict because we are so certain the other party will not respond well. And it will make things worse. This passage here gives great hope to us. Now, think about this. You've got the millionaires of the day. And they've got a great business plan. And things are going well. And they're living high on the hog. And one guy walks up and says, you guys really shouldn't do this because God's word says so. And they say, you know what, you're right. We won't do it anymore. And we'll give it back. If that doesn't qualify as a miracle, I don't know what does. What hope that gives to us if all we're seeking is an apology or an understanding or some encouragement. You see, what Nehemiah does here is a pattern for us as we lead our families, as we lead our church, as we lead our society. 
Nehemiah describes this in, in greater detail in verses 14 and following. He says, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be governor, I did not take any of the food allowance. He says, basically, I mailed back in my salary and I lived off of my own means. Now, you have to understand, this is not some sort of symbolic gesture like one of our politicians who says, I'm going to only earn a dollar this year, but I'm going to keep the free limo. I'm going to keep the free house, and I'm going to keep the free servants, and I'm going to keep the free security, and I'm going to keep the free airplane, and I'm going to keep the free helicopter. No. Nehemiah says, I'm not going to take anything, and by the way, I'll pay for the secret service, and I'll pay for the limo, and I'll pay for when the foreign dignitaries come in and they need to eat, and I'll pick up all of the governmental costs out of my pocket. That's real self-sacrifice. That's not a talking point. You see, he surrendered the rights that he legitimately had. You almost wonder if he had read Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Much more likely the reverse is true. When Paul said, I'm not going to stand on my rights. I will earn my own way. I will tent make. I took nothing. I think Paul spent a lot of time in Nehemiah 5. Seeing that this is the way that you lead. This is the way you get people behind you. This is the way you build up community. Of course, both of them are following the example set forth by our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. Where he did not insist on his own rights. but Rather, he took on the form of a servant that he might serve others. And Nehemiah doesn't just sacrifice He also identifies with the people. Notice in verse 16, he works alongside them on the wall. He brings his servants to work. He is a part of this. He is not a supervisor. You know the old joke about the road crews as they repair highways? There's ten people on the crew, one guy to work, and nine guys to supervise? That's not Nehemiah. Everybody's picking up a shovel. Everybody's laying brick. Nehemiah is not saying, my hands are too soft as the governor. He's right in the middle of the work. He's compassionate. He has a long-term view. Now, what does this mean for us? We're not going to be the governor of a province, I dare say. We're not going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem or even Houston. But I think as we look at Nehemiah's actions and we understand that they are motivated by a desire to please God, that gives us our course of action. You see, this was the conclusion of the whole difficulty. They gather together all of the people. And Nehemiah gives this great, dramatic, prophetic symbol, shaking out his garment like the prophets of old. And then... You see, if I can put it this way, the proof text for something we do every Sunday. There is this great congregational amen. And that is like a thunderclap that's found in the assembly. Saying, we all agree, we are all of one accord, we are all together in this. And our desire is to please God. Not ourselves, not each other. And it is no coincidence that that assembly meeting ends by them praising God. Because this is the focus of all of their actions. You see, 
Nehemiah's actions were done with respect to God. He used God's word as his rule. He used God's authority as the reason for the actions. And he used God's glory as the end of his actions. All that he did was not just about aiding suffering. It was not just about helping complaining people. It was not just about right in the abstract. It was about bringing the glory of God to be seen in the midst of the people of God in Jerusalem. And that is something that you and I can take upon ourselves each and every day, no matter where we are, to seek to glorify God in all that we do. And so the conclusion of the matter is this. Expect problems in the church. Don't be surprised by them. As Nehemiah did, confront them courageously. But it is critical that you have your integrity intact if you're going to do that. Think of how this story would have gone if Nehemiah would have been one of the hard lenders. They would have looked at him and said, you charge double what we charge. We're not listening to you. But because he had his integrity intact, he could make a difference. And see problems in the church as opportunities for God to work in our midst. You know, there's a very similar (coughs) story in the New Testament of people crying out and complaining, actually of women crying out and complaining. It's found in Acts chapter 6. It's how the widows were not being given their due. But have you ever traced beyond the real immediate solving of that problem? The widows are not being given their due, and so the apostles call upon others to wait tables to help so that they can be committed to the word and prayer. And the deacons are called, and they solve that problem. Do you know what happens when those deacons come? The word of God begins to spread out. Persecution comes and sends the people of God out of Jerusalem and out of Judea. And do you know what happens to the church of God? It explodes. It doubles, triples, ten times in size because of problems that they confronted and that God used in His sovereign plan for His own glory. When you are faced with a problem within the church, look to the Lord. Look to Him to resolve it. And just look See his glory. Let's pray.